0: TED audio collective This is Zigzag, I'm Anoush Samarodi and welcome to chapter 11, our second to last episode of season 1. I can't believe we've made it this far. Wow. I want you to think of this week as kind of a crash course. We're calling it 10 things you need to know about crypto that won't make your eyes glaze over if you're not the kind of person who spends their time tracking the price of Bitcoin which I am most definitely not. But here's what I find so interesting. Folks, the world of blockchain is like a parallel universe. It is all around us. But until you know what to look for, you don't see it. So get ready to take the red pill. Or is it the blue pill? Right after this break. So back in chapter two of Zigzag, all those weeks ago, I told you about the first ever blockchain conference that Jen and I went to, it was a rite of passage. But what I didn't tell you was that while I was there, I was interviewed by a reporter, June Ian Wong, who was writing a piece about Civil. And at the time, I asked him if I could record him interviewing me. Yeah, you know, just kind of met and weird.
1: Get from civil.
0: Uh, <laughs> that would be nice, but no. <laughs> I mean, like, no. As you can you know, hear, what? I That's could awesome. not use the tape because it was so windy. I completely screwed it up. But anyway, June went back to London, and we became Twitter friends. And throughout this whole first season of ZigZag, whenever I've wanted to fact-check something, June has generously typed back the answer to the question that I've messaged him. So I am so thrilled to say that this week, June has kindly agreed to be everyone's crypto tutor, to school us all with a countdown of the top 10 surprising, weird, and important things to know about digital currencies and blockchain. Just a few quick reminders before we start. Civil, the experimental platform for journalism that we joined, is having its token sale in September. When it launches, likely in October, it will run on the Ethereum blockchain. Good call, Blockchain Guitar Man. Again, if you haven't heard chapter two, it was a goodie. It also includes our fun beginner explainer of Bitcoin and blockchain and Ethereum. Go back and listen, or maybe even listen again. Because to be fair, this episode is kind of veering into intermediate territory. You still here? All right, cool. Meet your tutor.
1: I'm Jun-Yan Wong, and I'm managing director for Europe and Asia at CoinDesk. We are a news source, so we cover the crypto and blockchain world, much as the New York Times might cover the world.
0: And depending on where you are in the world, Crypto might be mainstream or not so much. So, like, compare South Korea to the U.S., for example. It's estimated that around 30% of South Koreans have invested in cryptocurrencies versus less than 8% of Americans. So let's just lay out the scene as we start with number 10 of our things to know about crypto. Blockchain and crypto, they are global phenomena. I haven't been in this world very long, like, I don't know, four months. <laughs> it's really early for me. But it's almost like an alternative society that is setting itself up that runs by different rules and there are different tribes in it. And it's, but it's all around me, even just here in Brooklyn, too. How do you think of it?
1: Yeah, it's almost like a parallel. Yeah, exactly. Global kind of universe. Yes. It's kind of like when you start seeing it, you can't unsee it. And you say, oh, there's like a, you know, there's a crypto conference going on here. And, you know, there's a Bitcoin mining rig over there. I think the incredible thing about this world is how global it is, right? So unlike like the early internet and so on, it was very like US centric, Silicon Valley centric. You can go to Buenos Aires, Singapore, Kenya, you know, there's crypto stuff going on in all of those places.
0: And dig deeper into all those places, and you'll uncover various factions, subcultures. This is number nine cryptic crypto subcultures. Different groups of people believing in different blockchains and different currencies, and some of these people behaving rather differently too. For example, one trend among people into some specific crypto is becoming a carnivore, like no fruit. No veg even. Just eat meat. You mentioned that like Zcash people are into being carnivores. And I was like, what the hell are you even talking about?
1: I think it started in the Zcash community where a lot of people, including the founder of Zuko, um, started adopting a carnivorous diet. So they, they only eat meat. You know, I think it's like paleo, but like more extreme. And that's become a trend now. So like last night, I, I'm, in, I'm in New York now visiting, and some people came, we had drinks, and then they said, oh, we're going off after this to the Bitcoin carnivores dinner.
0: That dinner was held by a well-known so-called Bitcoin maximalist, someone who really believes in Bitcoin.
1: So somebody who really uh, believes that the tenets of Bitcoin, as described by Satoshi, uh, should not ever be changed. The block size should never be bigger than two megabytes and all of these kind of things. Um, So Bitcoin maximalism is like another Tribe for okay. sure. Okay. Um, what else is there? They're the enterprise people, so the people who work at banks and consultancies and so on. It's not as colorful of, of, of a group, but they really believe in you know blockchain without Bitcoin, right? Blockchain without cryptocurrencies, right? They think that they can use some of these ideas in a way that's not the same as a public cryptocurrency system. People call Ethereum people uh, ETH, ETH huffers or gas huffers, uh, <laughs> people who believe in the vision of the world computer as laid out by Vitalik.
0: June is referring to Vitalik Buterin, creator of the Ethereum blockchain, which he touts could be a world computer. It's too much to get into here. We'll link on our website.
1: So that's the Ethereum thing. That whole thing has evolved into um, animal mascots now. So <laughs> there's something called Magical Crypto Friends. There's a lion. There's a panda. There's, there's a series of animals. I, I forget all of them. Okay. And each of them represents like a different coin.
0: I mean, that sounds like my seven-year-old daughter who's super into emojis, like it's not that different.
1: So that's why I say it's like not that culty, because all of this is done with a kind of like sideways kind of, you know, angle of like, this is so ridiculous.
0: And that brings us to number eight. You gotta laugh. It really is okay to guffaw at all this blockchain crypto talk. In fact, it's required it sounds like you're saying that people in the crypto world might approve of us kind of chuckling.
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, I think if you take take this stuff seriously, you'll go like insane in like days. So I think there's a long history of just like in-jokes that has evolved into a culture within the crypto world. So there's a whole lexicon of jargon, slang, memes. Hoddle? Hoddle is like one of the foundational ones. Um, you know... Biddle?
0: Th- th-
1: Biddle, right? <laughs> I've never heard that said out loud before, but there you go.
0: Huddle <laughs> is the lingo for holding onto your crypto in the hopes that it appreciates. Biddle refers to building apps on the blockchain. But I think it was like super dorky of me to actually say it out loud. Anyway.
1: A lot of this takes place on Twitter, right? That's the place where people kind of like make jokes about each other. Sometimes it gets... A bit hairy, like I think crypto culture is built on this kind of Reddit-like in-joke meme kind of economy.
0: But does that veer into crypto bro nastiness?
1: A little bit, I guess. Um, but you know, no more than I would say any other you know subculture. Right. You know, crypto is predominantly men. It's a very male-dominated area.
0: And many of those men, and women, apparently like digital cats. A fad called CryptoKitties is coming in at number seven.
1: Last year we saw CryptoKitties was very popular. Like
0: crypto CryptoKitties.
1: They're just collectible tokens. They're kind of like Beanie Babies. They have different attributes. You can breed them, and you can try and get the ones with more rare attributes. And, like in everything with crypto, there's a market for them. So you can sell them for hundreds of thousands of dollars in it's some just cases. Just like
0: Beanie Babies. Right.
1: Um, so so CryptoKitties was popular. It had a moment, and it basically crashed the entire Ethereum network.
0: People breeding and selling their virtual kitties on the blockchain. Okay. Can we please get back to making the world a better place? Okay, number six. Why blockchain? Or, as I like to call this one, how to respond to Paul Krugman. I'm sure you did read this um, Paul Krugman article. He's the uh, op-ed writer for the New York Times and economist. And he wrote this one sentence that I wanted to put to you. He said, what problem does cryptocurrency solve? I have yet to see a clear answer to that question. How would how do you answer that question?
1: Yeah, I think it's, it's not obvious uh, to people in places with decently managed economies and monetary policies. But you know, the the oft quoted example is like Venezuela. So like what happens if the stewards of your economy are not doing a good job? it's good to have an alternative. In the case of Venezuela and the, and the Bolivar, people are buying Bitcoin to get out of the Bolivar. Now, critics of that say, well, that's just, you know, that's, that's uh, capital control evasion. That's, that's breaking the law. Well, it is, but, you know, it's kind of not a great law, right? People are suffering because they can't get out of this currency that's being devalued all the time.
0: You know who else crypto has become useful to? Russian hackers. And this brings us to number five. The Russian digital attacks during the U.S. election of 2016 were, at least partly, funded with Bitcoin. Crypto has actually kind of crept into the news headlines in that U.S. intelligence have said that the Russian hackers who got into the DNC, who did a number of things to sort of mess with Americans' perception of what politics were, that they actually paid a lot of their bills in Bitcoin. And that was the first time I had seen really Bitcoin in like a politics article. Do you think that that like, marks a moment and is it kind of bad news for crypto enthusiasts
1: you know this has happened uh, in waves uh, over the years so back in 2013 when i first started covering this space as a reporter at coindesk all the headlines were, were about this it was about silk road which was the dark net market and people using bitcoin to buy drugs
0: and at a big crypto conference in 2015 a lot of u.s law enforcement actually attended
1: The FBI sent lots of agents and they spoke at the conference. The DOJ spoke at the conference. Katie Hahn, who now runs uh, Andreessen Horowitz Crypto Fund, at the time was the, the main person at DOJ. And they really liked Bitcoin because even if they couldn't detect the usage of Bitcoin for nefarious purposes at the time, in real time, later on, when they question a suspect and they have computer files and evidence, they can start linking it back to Bitcoin transactions that are public.
0: What? I thought this was supposed to be anonymous.
1: (laughs) So they they have developed some de-anonymizing techniques. So Bitcoin is not an anonymous currency. It's pseudonymous. Um, So they are unique identifiers that if you collect enough, it's a bit like online advertising, Right. right? If you collect enough identifiers and in this case if you have the specific you know computer files of a specific person you can start piecing together and identifying what transactions went to where and to whom <laughs>
0: More than halfway through, 10 things you need to know about crypto, only four left, including an answer to the very urgent environmental question that so many of you have been asking. That is after the break. Where were we? Oh, right. Number four. That is miners, the people with the computers who all together form a blockchain. Who are they and why do they do it?
1: The work that's being talked about is the solving of a relatively simple puzzle, mathematical puzzle, but which is done, you know, trillions of times a second. And it's a little bit like a lottery, right? So you keep trying different combinations and so on until you hit the right one. Then you get a reward. The miner gets a reward. The network releases a reward to the miner. That's how miners get incentivized to build a big warehouse and put it full of mining uh, machines. So um, Ethereum is basically the same as Bitcoin when it comes to mining. There is a lot of work being done to try and move away from this model because one of the criticisms is it's very energy-intensive.
0: And that brings us to number three, the environmental impact of blockchain. Remember how I said blockchain was all around us? I just discovered that a bunch of solar panels on nearby roofs are part of a pilot program using blockchain to redistribute energy in our neighborhood. So there are ways people want to use blockchain to try and use less energy. But meanwhile, June says, miners are kind of crafty about how they're powering their rigs.
1: It's a thing that comes up a lot. And one of the current responses to that in the Bitcoin world, for example, is, um, there are good incentives for miners to use renewable energy and wasted energy. Um, for example, um, you know, last summer I went to Inner Mongolia to visit one of the biggest Bitcoin mines uh, in the world.
0: No um, Yeah,
1: huge, you know, eight warehouses run by Bitmain, which is the uh, the biggest miner in the world. They're worth billions of dollars. Uh, they made one billion in profit this quarter.
0: Just by mining bitcoins.
1: And they mine Bitcoin. They they make the machines. They sell those machines.
0: What do the machines look like?
1: Um, they just look like little boxes, like you know, half a foot tall. They have a fan on one end. And they have a a bunch of uh, chips packed into a circuit board on the other end. And they're very, very loud. I mean, when you have tens of thousands of these, the first thing you experience when you enter a big Bitcoin mine is just the, the sound of the fans whirring and whirring and whirring, cooling down the machines.
0: How many of these warehouses are there in the world, if you had to guess?
1: Possibly hundreds. So miners are incentivized to get the cheapest possible electricity. A lot of that cheap electricity is electricity that power plants cannot sell to the grid. And so in in Inner Mongolia, for example, there are lots of coal-fired power plants out there, but not much industry because that area had a big economic decline, and so there wasn't much, you know, new factories were not going up and they weren't buying that electricity from the grid. And so the power plants, you can't really, you can't just shut down a power plant and then spin it back up again. They're still there and, you know, they still have to feed coal into it to keep it going. And so what the miners do is they find these places with a lot of wasted electricity and they buy it because it's cheap. Hmm. And so that electricity is basically going to be burned and generated anyway. Uh, It's just that now someone is paying a good price for it.
0: How do they get hooked up to that?
1: They they go out there. The mine I was in was in an industrial estate, so there's infrastructure, right? So the, the power lines are all set up, and you just plug it in. It's like a factory, but it's making bitcoins.
0: Like a factory, but it's making virtual money. Mind blown? Mine sure is. Pun intended. Mine sure is. Okay, coming into the home finish with number two. And this is specific to CIVIL, our blockchain experiment, Ether. Ether is the cryptocurrency used to pay for transactions that happen on the Ethereum blockchain, which is where Civil's going to live. Now, those of you who already took the token foundry quiz to buy tokens may already know a little bit about all of this or maybe pretended to know. I don't know if you've seen, but like now that civil, the sale is scheduled for September, the plan is, yes, people can buy civil tokens, but first they actually have to buy ether to do that. Why? Can you explain what the reason is? Because to me, I'm like, ugh, how annoying. Can't I just like stick in my credit card to buy some civil tokens? But no, I have to buy ether.
1: There are good reasons why you should use ether because, you know, civil is being built on top of Ethereum, right? So you kind of want that to be aligned, you're building on top of this protocol. The downside is, I guess, the price of Ether could fluctuate wildly. And then that means if you were planning to, for example, liquidate or sell some of that Ether stash for dollars to pay the bills, then you, know, you might have less dollars if, if the price went down. But of course, you could go the other way as well. But then also, like you, you basically can whip out your credit card to buy Ether.
0: But here's the rub. You can't do anything with your Ether if you don't have gas. Insert fart joke here. It's like you've got a car. That doesn't mean you can go anywhere. You still need to fill it up, right?
1: Gas is the cost of computation of a smart contract on, in, in Ethereum. In the Ethereum world, the car is the smart contract so in order for the smart contract to move and to like do stuff, mm-hmm. you need to pump in the gas so that those computations, those steps in the smart contract, are actually executed. And there's a real cost to the computation, which is being incurred by miners in Ethereum. So the gas goes to the miners to execute all of those bits of the smart contract.
0: Mm smart contract. It's also called a self-executing contract. Like, let's say your son has an Oreo and your daughter says to him, listen, I'll clean your room if you give me that Oreo. She loves Oreos. And the boy, let's call him Mohammed, is like, all right, I'll give it to you after you clean my room. And the girl's like, no way. I don't believe you're going to eat it first. So they give you the Oreo, dear parent, guardian, to keep it in escrow. And when you see that the room has been cleaned, you hand over the cookie. You are the smart contract, the executor of the deal in this scenario. Replace the cookie with a token and journalism for cleaning the room and you kind of get the idea, maybe a little bit. Okay, so once the code is written, smart contracts can execute thousands upon thousands of deals without any people needed to make sure that no one gets screwed over, that these transactions actually happen. There's some debate over whether smart contracts are actually kind of dumb. But dear God, I cannot take that right now. We will put links on our website and in the newsletter. And here is the good news. We're at number one in our 10 things to know about crypto. Because, whoa, this whole blockchain world is wacko. Don't you think so? Yeah, I might be losing it. Number one, it's Ethereum's existential crisis. Number one is also a big tease of what you're going to hear in next week's grand finale of ZigZag Season 1. Last question. Uh, We are going to interview Joe Lubin for the last episode of Season 1 of ZigZag. Joe Lubin is... One of the co-founders of Ethereum. He runs Consensus, which is essentially a group of startups using Ethereum to build their own little mini startups, sort of its own ecosystem. Civil is part of that. Uh, MetaMask is another company that Civil is using. Token Foundry is another company that's part of Consensus. Like if I could ask a question on behalf of really your readers, what what do they want to know?
1: I think one question that's hanging over Ethereum is when are the scaling solutions going to come? By that you mean? Uh, so the issue with Ethereum now is that you, they can't do enough transactions or process enough computations per second to really support, let's say, you know, let's say the farmville of Ethereum was made. It could never support the number of users who would want to presumably play it. And so the, all these efforts on their way to allow more transactions take place. But this has been happening for a number of years, and we are you know, nowhere near some kind of finished piece of software. So I think that is a big question because if the promise of Ethereum is is a world computer, you can do all these applications on it, you need to be able to support those applications if they become successful. So the big question now is like, yeah, all these people, Joe Lubin is funding all these teams to make all of these applications. What if one of them actually becomes super popular? Like Ethereum actually cannot handle that level of popularity. So I think that's one kind of...
0: Oh, crap. That's not good.
1: That's one big existential question that's facing Ethereum.
0: So you're saying that, like... Let's say enough people go through this token foundry registration process, and enough people really are they're like, "Hell, yes, let's give civil a shot. There's a possibility that Ethereum may not even be able to support oh, the transactions yeah.
1: and this happened all of last summer. The Ethereum network crashed multiple times. It was clogged up many, many times, but I think it's, it's a real concern for people who are staking their kind of livelihoods or their futures on this idea of, like, let's do all these apps on Ethereum. If Ethereum, the platform, cannot support those apps, that starts to become a problem. And, you know, maybe people start moving to other platforms. There are platforms like Tezos and EOS and and Qtum and NEO and all these other ones that are promising to have better foundational features than Ethereum.
0: More capacity. More
1: capacity, easier to program and stuff like that. So there's certainly people who think that all of this... Stuff that consensus is funding um, is is a lot of marketing. It's a lot of hype.
0: Should I be careful? I mean, we are being. Some people are saying, like, be careful. You guys are you you're being shells for Joe Lubin and consensus. Do you think we're being shells for Joe Lubin and consensus? Well, I
1: think only insofar as like you have a conviction, you believe in a particular platform, and you act on it. So. Um, so, no, I don't think, you know, I don't think any of the teams are necessarily shilling for, for Lubin. They believe Ethereum works.
0: I don't believe Ethereum works. I'm taking the people who have convinced me to be part of this experiment. I'm taking their word for it. But it's about the journalism for me, not about the, some belief in the tech, I think.
1: Hmm. Um, well, I think civil is kind of like modular enough that you can hold those beliefs. But then at the core of it is also, like, if you want to undertake this experiment, one of the outcomes is, like, whether this tech works, right? So that's kind of, like, what you're testing for as well, right?
0: Is this whole experiment just too early in the technology?
1: Um, I think there's a good argument that it's too early. Um, But, you know, then again, if people don't do the too early experiments, you never get there in the end.
0: Thank you so much, June. Thank you. June Ian Wong of Coindesk. He's really good at explaining this stuff, isn't he? Thanks again, June. Say hi to June on Twitter, at June Ian. That is at J-O-O-N-I-A-N. Or you can go check out Coindesk.com. Alright, so you've already got some idea of what's coming in the final episode of season one of ZigZag, an interview with the co-founder of Ethereum, plus lots of your voice memos next Thursday, because they are so awesome. And You guys are from everywhere. In fact, thanks to our listener survey, we now know that about one in four ZigZag listener is international, which is so Cool. Hi, Zig This is Liz
1: from Stuttgart, Germany.
0: Greetings from
1: Ireland. My name is Ed Coulson. I am Elise. I'm calling you from Paris, France. I'm Arthur. I'm an architect from Brazil. Dan calling from Tasmania and Australia. My name is David. I live in Mexico. This is uh, Jan and Kate from New Zealand. Diego speaking from Montevideo, Uruguay.
0: Okay, now to my ask for the week. If there's a particular moment that stuck with you from season one, we would love to know. We are trying to assess what worked over this first season. It has certainly been an educational process for me. Our email is zigzagstableg.com. If you've written or sent a voice memo and haven't heard back from me yet, please rest assured you will. I am making my way slowly and steadily through that awesome, brimming inbox. As for social media, we're on Twitter and Instagram at zigzagpod. We usually respond pretty quickly over there. And I've got a special request this week. Please tell one person you know about Zigzag. If they don't know what podcasts are, teach them. We're all in this together. Uh, as I mentioned before, we are going to be here in your podcast feed every other week through September with updates on the token sale. But season two of Zigzag will officially start in October. So get your pals, your friends, your family, get them all caught up on season one so you can experience season two together. Also, very important, we've got links to all the crazy stuff that we talked about on this episode, like Crypto Kitties, on our website, meow, at zigzagpod.com. And of course, in our weekly newsletter, which you can sign up for at the bottom of our homepage. A couple of you have told me that you've had trouble signing up. What the heck? We are looking into that. Let us know if you sign up and don't get the amazing newsletter that I've been pouring my heart and soul into every week. I need to know. Time to go now. This episode was produced by me and Jen Poyant. David Herman was our audio engineer and composer. Many thanks to our other audio engineers, Matt Boynton and Dan Zula, And we're saying goodbye and thank you to our fab summer intern, Jordan Lauf. Jordan, you have been a huge help this summer, and we can't wait to see what you go on to achieve. Zigzag comes from Stable Genius Productions in partnership with Civil. We are proud members of Radiotopia from PRX. I'm Anoush Samarodi, and thank you so much for listening.
1: Hello guys, we're trying to buy some Crypto Kitties. It's really nice, you just need to buy Ethereum. I'm gonna link in the description for Binance Affiliate link.